thank you for staying tuned to WRGC 88.3 FM. WRGC is the Lake Country's home for National Public Radio and Georgia Public Broadcasting radio programming. Coming up at 8, I convene a special hour-long conversation with business law and ethics professor Matt Ressing on the Trump administration's second Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. Keep it tuned here as we discuss a process that will help determine the foreseeable future of the country's highest court. That's coming up next on Georgia College Connections. You're listening to WRGC 88.3 FM, a broadcast service of Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university. Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. I am your host, Daniel McDonald. Just over 18 months in office, the administration of President Donald Trump is shepherding its second Supreme Court justice nominee toward confirmation. This time, it's U.S. Court of Appeals Judge Brett Kavanaugh under scrutiny on Capitol Hill. But unlike the selection of Neil Gorsuch to replace Antonin Scalia, Kavanaugh has the potential to realign the Supreme Court of the United States for years to come. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming back Matt Ressing, a professor of business law and ethics at the University of Georgia. For years, Matt has helped lead conversations on the Supreme Court in observance of Constitution Day, and he's been kind enough to bring those conversations to our radio audience right here on Georgia College Connections. Matt, I want to thank you for making the drive from the classic city to your former home here in the former state capital. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm glad to have you back, and let's just get started. Um, Brett Kavanaugh is the nominee for this next vacancy on the Supreme Court of the United States. Who is he? Well, maybe the most shocking thing about Brett Kavanaugh is how traditional a pick he is for the Supreme Court. So a lot of people talk about Trump's presidency as very unconventional. This is a very conventional pick. Kavanaugh is the quintessential D.C insider. In fact, he was born in the district. So born in D.C., went to Georgetown Prep, went to Yale undergrad, Yale Law School, judicial clerkships, clerked for Justice Kennedy, the outgoing Supreme Court justice, and then went into government. Did a short stint at Kirkland & Ellis, which is a white shoe law firm, and then back into the government and then on to the D.C. Court of Appeals, which is sometimes called the springboard to the Supreme Court. So this is pretty much exactly what we would expect to see in the CV of a Supreme Court justice. And is that any bit of a discrepancy, uh, giving the kind of outsider mantle that the Trump administration is trying to uh, champion? You know, it, it may seem a little out of character, for President Trump to nominate someone like this, but it's been pretty par for the course with his Supreme Court justices. That's what we've seen from the start is that Trump is pretty non-traditional in pretty much every single sphere except for this. And part of the reason for that is that he doesn't really seem to be picking the judges himself, or at least the long list and then the short list that he chooses from has been developed by this group called the Federalist Society, which are a bunch of Beltway insiders and conservative legal experts who have kind of shepherded him through this process. And, you know, there's even some speculation that that may have been part of the deal with Trump as he was closing in on the nomination for president. And then in the election, the president is, okay, you know, you can do these outsider things with everything except for the Supreme Court. That needs to be a traditionalist pick. 
And so far, that's been the case. Neil Gorsuch and now Brett Kavanaugh, what you would expect from pretty much any Republican president. We're talking about the Supreme Court, but may I digress for a second and ask you about some of those lower judicial nominations. One of the things that has been noted with the Trump administration is how laser focused, at least the administration has been about filling vacancies on courts um, at all levels where they can. And it's not surprising, as we'll talk about later, the judges have a very important role in the United States in setting law and interpreting the Constitution, interpreting federal law, setting legal precedent. So when a president has the opportunity to fill the courts with judges that fit a certain ideology, they tend to do it, particularly when things hang in the balance like they do now. And every time Trump appoints a justice, uh, or in this case, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, if he is confirmed, he will be leaving the D.C. Court of Appeals to go to the Supreme Court. Well, that leaves an opening on the D.C. Court of Appeals, and Trump gets to nominate someone to fill that position. So again, we've seen a real focus, maybe not necessarily by Trump personally, but certainly by his advisors, his general counsel, his advisors in the Federalist Society. They have been ready to go from day one to fill all the empty seats in the federal judiciary with people that they feel support their ideology. And we have seen a very quick pace when it comes to nominations and confirmations of those judges. And for a administration, what is the appeal of trying to act so quickly, so concertedly, on the judiciary. Well, you're setting your mark and, and not just temporarily like you would with appointees to, uh, say, administrative agencies that come and go with the political wins. You're setting your mark for life. Federal judges serve for life. Supreme Court justices serve for life. So if you get someone in there that you feel is a reliable vote for the sort of things you believe in, that will have a jurisprudence that reflects your philosophy, you get them on there while they're young, and you've got them for another 40 years, perhaps. One of the essays I was reading in, in preparing for our conversation today um, was talking about the ascendancy of the judiciary. Do you feel that that is something that uh, we're seeing right now? You know, I guess it's hard to say. It's always been critically important. So ever since Marbury v. Madison, ever since 1803, the courts have asserted their right to interpret the Constitution and to interpret federal law. And that, that's a big power. Maybe it comes into even more focus and even more importance when you start to see stagnation in Congress, when you see less laws happening through legislative action, then perhaps the court battles over the laws that were passed previously become even more important. We're about out of time in this segment already, and we have not even really talked about our nominee except for the basic biographical information. Uh, so we have a lot more to explore in that area. Uh, but let's take this first short break. If you're just joining us, we are talking about the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court of the United States of America. I'm joined in the studio today by Matt Ressing. He is a professor of business law and ethics at the Terry College of Business at the University of Georgia. Of course, you're listening to Georgia College Connections right here on WRGC 88.3 FM.
during the break, we talked and we actually thought that we would talk about the outgoing Justice Anthony Kennedy. So let's pick back up the conversation there and uh, just start off with the obvious question. Who is Anthony Kennedy? Sure. I think to understand the impact that Kavanaugh will have on the court, if confirmed, we have to look a little bit about the person that he's replacing, Anthony Kennedy. Kennedy has been on the Supreme Court for 30 years. He's 81, just announced his retirement. Now, Kennedy also had what we've called in past conversations the right stuff to be a Supreme Court justice. This is a pretty closed community. So Kennedy went to Stanford undergrad. He went to Harvard Law. There's basically five schools that all these justices come from. But one bizarre thing about Kennedy, which makes him pretty unusual for a Supreme Court justice, is he actually worked as a lawyer. And that may seem a little weird that I'm saying it's surprising a Supreme Court justice has worked as a lawyer. But the typical path is you go to one of these, you know, elite law schools, you clerk, you maybe work in government for a bit. You do almost, you know, a victory lap as a partner at a big law firm for a few years. And then you go on to a federal judicial job. Kennedy actually worked as a lawyer and ran his own law firm in California uh, for about 14 years. And while he was doing that, he became buddies with a guy named Ronald Reagan, who was the governor at the time. And that was kind of his ascendancy into the political system. So at Reagan's behest, Ford put Kennedy on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and then Reagan later put him onto the Supreme Court in, in 1987. Uh, but what I think is fascinating about this is he wasn't Reagan's first pick for the Supreme Court. He was actually his third choice. The first choice was a guy named Robert Bork, who was nominated to be a Supreme Court justice but failed to get confirmed. In fact, later we're going to talk about confirmation and some of the partisan divides. This was probably the beginning of these partisan clashes over judicial confirmations. And in fact, now inside the Beltway, when you talk about obstructing a justice, you say you're borking them. Uh, So uh, Kavanaugh, right now the Democrats are trying to bork Kavanaugh. So Bork did not get uh, confirmed, and and part of that was because, again, uh, uh, reminiscent of some things that are going on in the news now, Bork was the guy who fired Nixon's special prosecutor. The prosecutor that was investigating Nixon, Nixon said, you know, gotta fire this guy who's investigating me. Bork was working as the number three in the Justice Department at the time. His two bosses refused to do it. Nixon went down the line until they got to Bork, and Bork said, okay, fine, I'll do it. That's called the Saturday Night Massacre, uh, when all these guys resigned rather than fire the guy investigating Nixon. It didn't really do Nixon any good. But after Bork uh, died, it kind of came out that in one of his writings that he said Nixon had actually promised him the job on the Supreme Court if he did this. He said, that's, that's not what influenced me to do it. But it was kind of interesting. Of course, this came up in his confirmation hearing and probably led to him not being confirmed. The number two guy... It was a guy named Donald Ginsburg, who Reagan wanted to put on the Supreme Court. But his confirmation faltered after he admitted to smoking pot, which kind of did it for him. So it turned out to be more of an Allen Ginsburg than a Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Because of those two swings and misses on the third pitch, they got it through, and that was Anthony Kennedy. And, and he, of course, has put his stamp on the court for the last 30 years. As I was preparing for this, I was reading a lot about Anthony Kennedy and was looking into some of the writings of one of my colleagues who called Kennedy the quintessential swing vote, uh, something that Anthony Kennedy was not all too proud of. Uh, but what 
does that mean? What does the swing vote mean? Yeah, Kennedy really hated that term. And, you know, when he famously said, uh, the cases swing, I don't. And he didn't like this idea that it made him seem kind of wishy-washy, like he can't get made up his mind. And the way he looked at is, you know, we take the cases as they come and, and I am being more true to the law. I don't have a set philosophy. I'm not going to say with this type of case, I always vote this way or the other way. But the practical effect is that in close cases, for a lot of the time he was on the court, particularly these last decade or so, we've had four conservative justices, four liberal justices that on very close ideological issues tend to vote in blocks. So if we're talking about abortion, gun rights, gay marriage, death penalty, we tend to see the four more conservative justices all vote together, four liberal justices vote together, and no one's quite sure until the last minute what Kennedy's going to do. And because of his willingness to kind of join with different voting blocks, it has made him what some people call the most powerful person in the United States and perhaps the world. And you see in these closed cases, the lawyers are making arguments directly at him. They're citing his past opinions. They're making the arguments they think will be most palatable to him because his vote will make it a 5-4 in one direction or the other. Is that an aberration from the history of the Supreme Court? I don't think the idea that a justice might vote with one group or another or that they might vote across ideological lines is, is necessarily an aberration. I think one of the reasons we talk about it so much is that the court has been so polarized for the last 20 years or so that it matters a lot when a justice does this. And it's maybe more remarkable that the other justices don't tend to do this. 90% of what the Supreme Court does, they get 9-0 decisions, 8-1 decisions, 7-2. But those consensus decisions don't tend to be the ones that really make it into the press. Now, as the most powerful man on the Supreme Court, what has been the positive and or negative criticism of the way that um, Anthony Kennedy has um, used that great power. Sure. Well, he was appointed by a Republican president. He might have been expected to be a conservative. So sometimes when he's joining the liberal bloc on these positions, conservatives might say, oh, you know, what is this guy doing? He's a, he's a traitor. And, and a lot of the discussion over this current pick, really Gorsuch and now Kavanaugh, is making sure we don't get someone who is going to cross those lines. Let's make sure we get someone who is firmly in the red camp. You know, again, we, I'm talking about the, the uh, conservatives, the Republicans. And let's not get a Kennedy. Let's not get a suitor. Let's not get people that might, over time, change their positions. That's not quite fair to Kennedy. He's pretty darn conservative. So even if you look at the 5-4 decisions where he has swung, you know, quote unquote, he tends to swing conservative. And in fact, in this last Supreme Court term, he's, he joined the conservative justices pretty much every time. But places where he has joined with the liberals, Ginsburg, Kagan, uh, Sotomayor, and Breyer, have been pretty monumental decisions. And they've been with abortion, upholding a woman's right to have an abortion, upholding gay marriage, and some death penalty cases as well. So the times he has swung with the liberals, it has been pretty important, uh, you know, ideologically to a lot of more liberal causes. And that's why you hear a lot about it. In looking at those two differing camps, um, liberals and conservatives, um, uh, who might accept him back into the camp as he departs D.C.? 
There have been a lot of people writing about Kennedy. This is a great time to write about him, kind of dissect his legacy now that, you know, it seems to be ending. And one theme we see in a lot of jurisprudence is this idea of individual liberty. So maybe a way to look at him is not necessarily as, you know, red or blue, conservative or liberal, but more of a libertarian. He's always going to be suspicious of government intrusion into people's private lives. And in fact, that's probably the most significant change we're going to see from a Kennedy to a Kavanaugh is this idea that we need to keep the government from interfering in our lives. The idea that we might have a constitutional right to be left alone, uh, which lawyers call substantive due process. The idea that there are some rights in the Constitution that aren't actually written there, but are kind of in there, basically implied. One we've seen again and again upheld by Kennedy is this idea of a right to privacy. And that right, although you won't find it written anywhere in the Constitution, is what informs our constitutional protection to use contraceptives, to marry the people we choose, whether of different races or of the same gender. Arguably, even freedom of contract. You know, that's kind of where it all started back in the 1900s is that, you know, we had a a personal right to enter into contracts with people and the government shouldn't interfere. So this substantive due process right or a right to privacy or a right to certain personal things that the government can't interfere in, that's probably what is most at stake with Kennedy leaving and a more traditional conservative judge moving into his shoes. All right. Well, it has happened again. We are out of time in this segment, so we're going to take another opportunity for a short break. But if you're just joining us, you're listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Uh, Today, we are talking about the Supreme Court of the United States of America on the occasion of the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to fill the seat uh, being vacated by the retirement of Anthony Kennedy. I'm joined in the studio today by Matt Ressing. He is a business law and ethics professor from the Terry College of Business at the University of Georgia. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. with our conversation um, up until this point. Uh, You might remember in that last segment, we were talking about the idea of privacy and how it is or perhaps is not written into the Constitution and the ways that um, we are still debating this, I guess, made-up right um, uh, over 100 years after the fact. Um, So in that conversation, uh, you brought in a a new vocabulary word, (laughs) 
substantive due process. I thought we might start off um, right back there to uh, try to continue to define the uh, differences or perceived differences uh, between uh, this outgoing Supreme Court justice and their potential successor. Great. So we have certain rights uh, as U.S. citizens or maybe just people living in the U.S. under government authority uh, that protect us from government action. And we see many of those written in the Bill of Rights, freedom of speech, free assembly, freedom of religion. We call those enumerated rights. So they're listed, you know, they, they're not numbered, but well, I guess they are numbered, you know, one through ten. But uh, There's no real meaning to those numbers. Don't, <laughs> don't mistake that it's the, just because it's the First Amendment that that's the most important one. So when we talk about enumerated rights, we basically mean rights that are explicitly written into the Constitution. Now, this idea of unenumerated rights is, well, maybe there's some rights in there that are implied. And people who talk about unenumerated rights often focus on the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, which says that you can't be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Now, there is procedural due process. That means before the government can take your stuff, you have to, you know, be given notice of it. You have to have an opportunity to respond, maybe in a court hearing, but in some sort of process. That's the traditional way of thinking of due process. But starting around the turn of the century, uh, which I mean the 1900s, uh, the Supreme Court started to say, well, maybe there's some substantive due process. Maybe due process means that the government cannot do things that are just really unfair. So maybe there is some secret uh, right to be protected from basically unfair government action or over-intrusive government action. And one of the f most famous cases was called Lochner versus New York. And New York State had put a law in place that was basically keeping bakers from working very long hours. They said, you're not allowed to work as a baker for more than 10 hours per day. Okay? And there were lots of reasons for this, but it came to the Supreme Court to basically say, can we keep bakers from working longer if they want to? Um, or perhaps even keep employers from forcing bakers to work longer uh, hours. And the Lochner court said, we believe the Constitution has some implied right to freedom of contract. That if a employer wants to say to an employee, look, you can come bake for me, but you've got to work 12 hours per day. The government should not be able to stop that relationship from happening. Two consenting adults making a private arrangement. Government, you should have hands off. Okay, This was a majority of the court that decided this, and it was really one of the most important uh, origins of substantive due process because nowhere in the Constitution does it say you have this freedom. The idea was that the government is overstepping its bounds into a private arrangement. Okay. The dissenters accused the majority of judicial activism. So this was a conservative ruling, basically, saying that uh, you know we should allow businesses to do what they want, or at least to support a conservative ideology. And there, the more liberal justices said, you're being judicial activists, inventing this right that doesn't exist. So it started as a more conservative, business-friendly right. But for the past 70 years or so, it has really been used to advance a lot of liberal causes. So it fell out of favor in the mid-1900s, but in 1965, it really came back into force with a case called Griswold v. Connecticut. And what Connecticut was trying to do was prevent people from using contraceptives. 
basically said contraceptives are illegal. Married couples can't use them. Unmarried couples, of course, can't use them. They are sinful and therefore no go. Okay. Seven to two, the Supreme Court said, government, you're really overstepping your bounds here. We're not going to find anywhere in the Constitution a right to contraceptives, but what people decide to do, their decisions to have children, that's private. And the government really has no role in intruding on that. And this is where we started to see the idea of a right to privacy in in modern constitutional jurisprudence. Justice Douglas, uh, who was on the Supreme Court at the time, called this within the penumbra of constitutional rights. It became a famous phrase. Penumbra is the edge of a shadow. He's basically saying you're not going to see it in the Constitution, but it's kind of there if you squint just right. It wasn't that controversial. It was seven to two. But it started this series of cases, established a precedent that later was used to justify the right to marry uh, people you choose. So the case of Loving v. Virginia, which struck down anti-miscegenation laws, basically laws that had said people of different races couldn't marry. That was struck down under substantive due process as well as equal protection. And probably most importantly for this discussion, Roe v. Wade and the later case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which are two critical abortion decisions, are really justified under substantive due process, this constitutional right to privacy. Well, let's bring it back to the differences between this outgoing Supreme Court justice and this potential incoming Supreme Court justice. How does privacy play in, especially in some of the cases where their judicial philosophies potentially overlap? Sure. Well, a lot of the discussion about Brett Kavanaugh now is, will he overturn Roe v. Wade? To listen to the press and listen to the talk about it, everyone wants to just ask him that one question. Are you going to overturn Roe v. Wade or not? And it's more complicated. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, legally, it's not about whether he likes abortion or doesn't like it, whether he thinks it's good or bad. The legal issue is whether he feels there is a constitutional right to abortion. And that really comes down to whether he believes in substantive due process. And he probably doesn't. You know, he's not going to say this in a confirmation hearing explicitly, and we don't have explicit rulings from him on whether he would overturn Roe v. Wade, but we get the sense that he is an originalist in his philosophy. In fact, most of the judges that the Federalist Society put forward on this short list of nominees were seen as originalists in the mold of Scalia or Gorsuch, in that they like to look at the text of the Constitution. So textualism, let's look at what's there, let's not uh, add things that aren't there. Originalism, let's interpret this in the context of the rights the founding fathers thought they had, not the rights that you might think you have nowadays. And strict constructionism, which is, again, don't go looking for hidden meanings in the Constitution. What's there is there. Kavanaugh, as well as pretty much anyone else Trump might have nominated from that list provided to him, are going to be more of originalists, more strict constructionists uh, than Kennedy was. So Kavanaugh might say, look, this isn't about abortion. It's just about, I don't think the Constitution has a right to privacy. I'm not going to invent one. That means if a state then bans abortion, and you come to us and say, the Constitution protects me from this law, I'm going to say, I don't think so, because I can't find it in there. Now, that's not just abortion. 
that very well might apply to homosexual relationships or same-sex marriage, which also have been supported by due process. Now, it might even technically apply to things like anti-miscegenation laws. And it's a little more complicated because then you have equal protection grounds for those rulings as well. But it could really undo a string of precedent that goes back at least the 1960s and arguably back to the early 1900s. Is there anything about the retirement specifically of Justice Anthony Kennedy that has brought the debate over abortion uh, to the fore? Kennedy leaving or really any more liberal justice leaving would be a really big deal. And replacing him with any justice basically to the right of Kennedy is going to be a really big deal for you know people who have liberal philosophies. You're seeing a lot of backlash against Kavanaugh by Democrats. I think people should ask themselves, is it about Kavanaugh specifically, or is this about that he is a conservative coming onto the court at a time where these rights are really on a knife's edge? And personally, I think it's more of the latter. Really, anybody that Trump you know, might have chosen from this list provided by the Federalist Society, and really anyone we might expect that a modern uh, Republican president would pick, we would be having the same debate. Now, the fact that he's replacing Kennedy is interesting because Kennedy has made very monumental decisions on abortion rights. So we talked about the cases where he swings, and I said there haven't been many of them. He actually is more conservative than he is liberal. But the cases where he has swung have been very significant for abortion. He was not on the court during Roe v. Wade. And in fact, Roe v. Wade was not even particularly close. It was a 7-2 decision. But he was on the court for Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which was the 1992 case, which is, is kind of the real important precedent here for abortion rights. It dialed back Roe v. Wade a little bit. In fact, it's, uh, I, I believe it's documented, it's at least suspected, that in the early discussions of that case, Kennedy was going to vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. There were going to be five conservative votes to overrule Roe v. Wade's precedent and say there is no constitutional protection against state laws banning abortion. But something changed his mind between that initial conference and when he ended up voting and writing his opinion. And what we ended up getting in Planned Parenthood v. Casey was this rule that you cannot have a state law that puts an undue burden on a woman's right to have an abortion, or specifically on her right to privately make that decision in consultation with a physician. It's a bit ironic, the very beginning of that opinion starts out saying, liberty finds no refuge in a jurisprudence of doubt. Basically saying, it, it seems unfair that we're having this, this big controversy about what is an important right, or at least an important issue uh, for women, and for men, we should resolve it. But of course, what Planned Parenthood v. Casey really did is just open the door to another 30 years of wrangling over what constitutes an undue burden. So since then, a lot of the battles have been fought at the margins. Okay, you can't ban a woman from having an abortion, but can you say that she has to wait a certain period of time? Can you say that a abortion clinic has to have doctors with hospital admission privileges? Can you say that they have to have a certain size and space and equipment in an abortion provider? And those are the battles we've been fighting since Planned Parenthood. And Kennedy there has been going back and forth, in some cases striking down state laws that he feels impose an undue burden, in some cases not. 
So that's, again, why the departure of Kennedy is very important for abortion rights is because he has been the decider on not just whether it's allowed, but where you draw the line as to restrictions on abortion. In opinions Kennedy authored in this last term, he kind of brought in the idea about his thoughts on legacy Mm -hmm. and what he thought his time on the court meant for the court and these questions going forward. He said that decisions decided in the past should stand. Does his opinion on that really matter for anything as we go forward? Well, legally, no. I mean, stare decisis is the principle of let the decision stand. And, and what that means for American law, which is based on the English common law system, so this is, goes back you know, hundreds uh, of years, is that when a higher court makes a decision, all lower courts must follow it. We call it binding precedent. Another thing it means is that uh, a sister court, a court of equal authority, and maybe even a court of higher authority, should at least consider what other justices are doing. We call that persuasive precedent. The Supreme Court is the one court that doesn't have to care what any other court said. Uh, They can overrule their own precedent, and no other precedent is binding. Still, they don't like to do it willy-nilly. We don't know exactly what Kavanaugh is going to do. It would be pretty remarkable if, you know, the first case he has regarding abortion, he says, we need to overturn Roe v. Wade. I think it's likely that, you know, at least for a time period, we're going to have these cases at the margins uh, where states do not try to ban it outright, but they say we're putting these restrictions and he might be more willing to do that than overturn the precedent. On the other hand, you now have five justices that are willing to overturn Roe v. Wade. They certainly have the power to do that, and they do not have to give any credence to what a uh, former Supreme Court justice thinks about that. All right. Well, we will reflect on that for a moment. Uh, We're going to take another opportunity for a short break. But if you are just joining us, we are talking about Brett Kavanaugh and the Trump administration's second nomination to the Supreme Court of the United States of America. I'm joined in the studio today by Matt Ressing, a familiar voice for many of our listeners, uh, but a, a new title um, since at least uh, one time before the last time we saw you. Uh, He is a business law and ethics professor at the University of Georgia's Terry College of Business. Stay tuned and we'll be right back for more Georgia College Connections. Now, we spent that last segment talking about what has been the real lightning rod when we talk about this nomination, and that has been Roe v. Wade. Uh, But of course, um, no Supreme Court rules on just one topic. There are many other questions about law out there. Uh, What are some of the other topics that are piquing your interest uh, when we talk about this monumental change to the Supreme Court, potentially? Well, the Supreme Court has already accepted a number of cases that it will hear next term. 
Republicans hope they will already have you know, Brett Kavanaugh confirmed by then. He will join the new court in October and start uh, ruling on these cases. So I, I look to see what's coming up and whether there's any kind of lightning rod social issue cases. And there, there really aren't. The ones they've accepted so far are mostly business cases, cases involving copyright registration, arbitration, a couple interesting cases involving the rights of Native American tribes, but not kind of stuff that everyone is talking about now, like like abortion rights. So I don't see any of those cases has been accepted yet, but just you wait, uh, because particularly conservative groups know this change in the court is happening. I am sure there are a lot of lawsuits being filed right now or working their way up through the lower courts that will end up hitting after Kavanaugh or you know whoever replaces Kennedy. The issues that everyone's talking about now, aside from just abortion, are the environment, uh, so the role of the EPA and whether Kavanaugh will be deferential to EPA decisions or suspicious of them. The Affordable Care Act, again, uh, so uh, a perennial uh, discussion about the federal government's role in health care. The rights of LGBTQ individuals, so same-sex marriage and perhaps other civil rights involving people of different sexual orientations and gender identities. And then one of the big ones is presidential power. This is really a headline grabbing because it's this idea, you know, was Kavanaugh picked because he's the type of judge that believes that the president should be given free reign to do his job and not be bothered by any burdensome investigations into his uh, civil or criminal violations or civil or criminal allegations. Was Kavanaugh picked to let Trump out of the Mueller investigation? And this is an interesting topic because, of course, as we talked earlier in this interview, there was a list that was proffered by the Federalist Society. And that original list when Trump was a candidate, uh, if I remember correctly, Kavanaugh was not uh, on that initial list of potential Supreme Court nominees. Hmm. We do know that Trump you know, was certainly steered into this direction. But he did make the final pick. He said, you know, Kavanaugh, that's my guy. And people wonder why. Is there some sort of quid pro quo that Trump is expecting? Or maybe not even that obvious. Did he just pick someone who has in the past said things that suggest you don't have to worry about the Mueller investigation? Maybe. He has made some statements, really mostly in a, a law review article that he wrote, that suggests that he really doesn't think presidents should be burdened by having to go into depositions, answer interrogatories. Basically, presidents shouldn't have to deal with civil or criminal investigations during the time they're in office and that you cannot indict a sitting president. Basically, that as I have uh, read synopses of that law review article, uh, just saying that the job of the president is too important. There are too many other matters that may need his full attention uh, to try to um, uh, take away from those mental resources for these things would do a harm to uh, national security for one or, or just the administration of uh, the federal government. Yes. And we probably need to unpack that a little bit. I've read these excerpts of this law review article, too, and, and people's comments on it. I don't think it's clear that he's saying one thing or another, and we can get that into that in a moment. But the other thing we should mention is this is somewhat of an ironic viewpoint because Brett Kavanaugh made his bones as a young lawyer working for Kenneth Starr, who was an uh, independent counsel investigating Bill Clinton. 
in uh, you know what was the Whitewater scandal and became the Monica Lewinsky scandal. So it's a little odd to have a judge who was one of these special prosecutors or independent counsels going after a president to now say, you know what, we, sh- we should have left that guy alone. He had enough on his plate. Well, and how can we tease out um, how that opinion has changed? Um, of course, uh, the uh, Whitewater uh, Clinton, Monica Lewinsky scandal happened in the 90s. Uh, when was the Law Review article published? Uh, I don't have that in front of me. It was uh, it was several years later, so it wasn't in the moment. And he certainly was asked about that shortly after he wrote the article. You know, well, how can you say this when you work for someone doing it? And he had an answer, which I think is a fairly good answer. He said, well, you know, who would know better than me? I was part of this process, and, you know, having been a part of it, I can kind of see this isn't the way to go. At the same time, I don't think he's explicit in his law review article saying that the Supreme Court should get involved or that it's somehow unconstitutional or as a matter of you know constitutional law, the president should be immune from uh, these sort of investigations. What he, what he says in the law review article is Congress should act. Congress should pass a law saying, president, you don't have to worry about investigations when you're in office. And Congress has not done that. In fact, some people have looked at this law review article and said this actually indicates that he thinks as a matter of constitutional law, presidents do have to answer these questions. Presidents do have to go through investigations. Maybe presidents can be indicted because if that wasn't the case, why would you need Congress to pass a law protecting the president? But I'm just curious about that kind of give and take between the courts in the legislative branch. Is the work done when the Supreme Court rules on something? Is that the the ultimate say that we have on an issue? And what are some of the, I guess, issues um, or differing trains of thought around there? Well, it really depends on the situation, and it's fairly complicated. It depends on exactly what the Supreme Court is ruling on. Now, if the Congress passes a law, and the Supreme Court says that law is unconstitutional, well, that's the end of it when it comes to that law. But they could pass another law that you know wasn't quite banned by what the Supreme Court said. They can try again and say, well, how about this one, uh, and somehow get around it. When we think about something like marriage rights between same-sex couples, as the uh, court rules on Obergefell, I mean, is it incumbent upon uh, the federal government or perhaps state governments uh, then to uh, look at their own laws and then um, write what is written into their statutes uh, based on what the high court says? No, they don't have to. Uh, And I can think of a great example for this is flag burning. There's a federal flag code. There are a number of state flag codes that say you can't burn the flag, that you will be thrown in jail for burning the flag. And if you look up the statutes, a lot of those laws are still on the books. They were never repealed. They were never changed. However, the Supreme Court did decide, did make a ruling that said, no, that's protected speech under the First Amendment in pretty much any situation. So if you uh, burn a flag, you could certainly be arrested But then your lawyer would say, hey, hang on a second, there's a Supreme Court precedent that basically invalidated the law and you likely would go free. But that law is still on the books. Why that's probably very important for the debate over abortion and possibly even the debate over same-sex marriage is, well, what if this current Supreme Court overrules a prior Supreme Court, says, you know, Roe v. Wade was wrong, Planned Parenthood was wrong, Um, there is no constitutional right to abortion in any circumstances. Well, if you live in a state that 
had a law banning abortion and never changed it to comport with the Supreme Court ruling, and then the Supreme Court ruling gets overruled, then, you know, arguably that state law goes back into effect, you know, almost immediately. Same thing for same-sex marriage. Uh, you know, it's very likely that states uh, have changed their laws. They might have to just for a procedural point of view to allow same-sex couples to get married. But let's say a state kept that law on its books that marriage between a man and a woman, knowing that it wasn't enforceable under Obergefell, a future Supreme Court overrules Obergefell, well, that law comes back into action. They don't have to necessarily pass a new law to reinstate it. Now, is that an effective administration of government? I think it's confusing. I mean, we talked about how Kennedy said we don't want a jurisprudence of doubt. That's one thing business is like. You know, I am a, a business lawyer. Businesses love predictability. You know, from a business standpoint, it doesn't really matter what the court says, as long as we know and we can plan accordingly. So getting rid of Kennedy, getting rid of the quote-unquote swing vote, is a very good thing for predictability. Having six justices that always saying the same thing, or, you know, five really, then you know the way the court case is, is going to turn out. With Kennedy on the court, we were never quite sure, uh, which leads to inefficiencies. Now, if you feel very strongly one way or another, you might rather have, you know, ambiguity than know for sure you're going to lose. But that is one thing we might see with a Kavanaugh or another conservative on the court is just more predictability of outcomes. And we don't, you know, wait biting our nails wondering what the Supreme Court's going to decide on this issue because we kind of already know. And of course, obviously, it's impossible to ask you to speak for society. But what is the effect on our democracy of increased predictability on the courts? I don't know. I, I think that uh, it could be inspirational to one group or another to get out and vote, to get out and be more politically active. So it could be a wake-up call. If you feel that the election of Donald Trump change the court dramatically in a way that you like or a way you don't like, you may be more compelled to participate in the political process. A lot of times people think, well, my vote doesn't matter. Well, now we have definitive proof that it absolutely does. Mm. Elections have consequences. And a very timely message as uh, we look at <laughs> uh, at least the midterm elections, but um, at least at the time of recording this and, and perhaps the time that we will broadcast it, uh, the runoffs. Uh, to these elections that are so uh, consequential here for the state of Georgia. Uh, but we're going to take another short break. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking with Matt Ressing. He is a business law and ethics professor at the Terry College of Business at the University of Georgia, uh, formerly filling that same role here at Georgia College. Uh, but we're talking about the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court of the United States. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections.
in this last segment, I thought we'd talk a little bit about the very near future in the confirmation process um, that's coming up. Uh, what should we be looking for um, in the next coming uh, weeks and months? Republicans are going to try and shepherd Kavanaugh through this process, get him confirmed quickly and easily. They have a bare majority in the Senate, but they do have a majority. So what they're going to try and do is keep their entire voting block tight. Every Republican senator votes for Kavanaugh, and they're going to try and pick off a few Democrats as well. Democrats in red states, Democrats that in the midterms are going to have to answer to Trump supporters. They want this to go quickly and easily without much fuss. On the Democratic side, what you're going to see is resistance. They are going to try and, you know, number one, draw out this process as much as possible. There is a moonshot that they could be going for, which is if they manage to delay this confirmation through the midterm elections. If they delay the confirmation until after the midterms, if they're able to win enough seats in the Senate to have a Senate majority, they don't have to bork Brett Kavanaugh. They could just simply refuse to hear him at all, just like the Senate Republicans did for Merrick Garland, President Obama's nominee during his last year in office. It would be unprecedented. They would basically have to refuse to hear uh, a confirmation or to confirm him for basically two years. Now, would it be unprecedented or has that seal been broken because of the delay of the final Supreme Court nomination from the Obama administration? Well, we've been heading there for some time, you know, arguably since Bork. Uh, these confirmation hearings did not used to be this controversial. The president would nominate someone and unless they had some serious skeletons in their past, they would tend to go through on bipartisan support. We started to really see that unraveling with Bork, and it's gotten more and more partisan ever since. With Merrick Garland, that was pretty unprecedented, although Republicans would argue that, you know, Democrats have at least brought up the suggestion of something like that in the past with the so-called Biden rule. Uh, but uh, what is the Biden rule? Just briefly. <laughs> so my recollection is that Mitch McConnell, who is the Senate majority leader, when President Obama nominated Merrick Garland during you know, about, about his last year and change in office, Mitch McConnell had control of the Senate. Republicans had control of the Senate. They had the power to hold up Merrick Garland's confirmation indefinitely, or at least until Obama left office and we had a, a new election. And that's what Mitch McConnell said, let's do. Let's hold off. Let's let the next president decide. A lot of people said, what are you talking about? Your job as senators is to have confirmation hearings. You can't just wait until the president leaves office. And he referred to a comment that Joe Biden had apparently made years ago. He had suggested that, hey, you know, maybe we can just, when the Democrats are in power, maybe we can just hold this nomination up and not vote on it. That never actually happened. But Mitch McConnell used this as a way of saying, look, the Democrats were talking about doing it. So it's fair game. We're going to do it. Well, the Republicans under McConnell were the first group to actually do it, and particularly for that period of time. They not only uh, didn't confirm Merrick Garland for over a year, they wouldn't even talk to him. They didn't even have confirmation hearings. So Democrats could come back now, again, if they manage to push back the confirmation until past the midterms. If they win uh, a majority in the midterm elections, a lot of ifs, they then could say, well, we're not going to hear your guy. Now, unprecedented and yet we're going from one year, you know, arguably a kind of lame duck president to a president that has two more years in office. 
But they're going to say, well, it's a different in quantity, but not in kind. We're doing what you did to us. We're just doing it for a little bit longer. So that's the long-winded answer on what I mean by unprecedented. In my personal opinion, I don't think this is the way the game was intended to be played. And I don't think it's a really good way to play it. Because next time we go to three years, next time we go to four years, against, eventually we get to the point where if, if the president's party is different than the Senate's party, no judges ever get confirmed. And you could argue that we're, you're, we're kind of there now. You know, we may be there now. We just have to wait and see. That's not a good thing. We need people in these positions. Perhaps we are already there because isn't a part of the success of the Trump administration in changing the judiciary so much because there were so many open seats left over from the Obama administration because of the way that the Republican Party used the Senate to slow down the process for lower court positions. Yeah, and I guess I should challenge myself and say, well, is it really that bad? So what if we have a five-member Supreme Court because nobody else can, you know, the judges die or retire and nobody else can possibly get confirmed? It matters because they already have enough on their plate. That's probably the short answer for why this is, is almost certainly bad for our democracy, is that Nine justices mean a little less work for each of them. Uh, they have a lot to do. It helps for them to have colleagues on the bench, particularly with the lower courts. You know, if you're missing key roles, its cases are taking longer to get before judges. The administration of justice slows down. So, yeah, one judge here or there, you know, one seat open on the Supreme Court may not be the end of democracy. But if we start to see that snowballing, if we start to see empty seats on the judiciary, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. It certainly would defeat any spirit of compromise we have in politics to the extent that you know, it still remains. And we need to remember also some of the things that this union is, is based upon. The absence of a speedy trial, I mean, is one of those things tyrannies that we were fighting for because that's a, a tyranny that um you know is effectively used in uh despotic governments you know mm -hmm. ar ar around the world um uh, we've stood here on bork uh for a lot of this segment um and i just wanted to ask one more um uh, question about those changes since bork um you said that uh, since bork we've had these much more controversial uh confirmation hearings um, but i'm curious about the substance of these hearings since bork um, one of the uh, criticisms that came up in my research uh, several times looking forward to this interview is that uh, since bork you get a default answer by all nominees in that they're not really at liberty to speak to issues that may come before the court. Um, perhaps our partisans in the legislative branch have their minds made up already, uh, but what is the utility of the confirmation for us, the citizen? Well, you do get to learn a little bit about the nominee, if only about their ability to, you know, talk while keeping their mouth shut, which, you know, uh, uh, may be an important thing for a, a judge or a justice. You, you don't learn as much as you might because, again, because of the hyper-partisan nature of this, because these confirmation hearings are often seen as just an opportunity for senators to score points with their base by asking, you know, attacking questions, you do see a lot of reticence by the nominees to answer tough questions in a way that might illuminate their judicial philosophy. So what is the utility for us as citizens? You could say that it's an opportunity for the senators to make their positions clear. So maybe you're watching this confirmation hearing not caring so much what the nominee says, but seeing what the senator from your state has to say about this nominee or the questions they're asking. 
you get a sense of their priorities, and that might matter to you at the polls. And in fact, that's what I think this is actually about, the, um, the possibility of pushing back the confirmation until after the midterms and effectively shutting down this nomination are very slim. Uh, possible, but very slim. I think for a lot of Democrats, what this is about is a forum for them to let their base know before the elections where they stand on important issues. So when they're grilling Kavanaugh on abortion or the EPA or gay marriage, it's not that they really expect, you know, some some shocking Perry Mason-esque, you know, disclosure by him. What they are looking for is to tell the people at home, this is what I stand for. I'm going to fight for you on these issues. Whenever I go out and cover meetings, I'm not always focused strictly on the members of the organization that are holding the meeting. Sometimes I like to look around to other people there in the audience and see how it's um, uh, sinking in with them. Uh, As you have a great deal of interest in this, how do you perceive our relationship with perhaps just the highest court in the land or the judiciary in general um, when you look about your peers here in the citizenry? I personally think it's important for people to understand what judges should do, what the nature of law is, and how judges actually make these decisions. It's very easy to see this as, okay, Kavanaugh is pro-abortion, Kavanaugh is anti-abortion, Kennedy is pro-this or or anti-that. And and that may be the case. Again, these are human beings who do have feelings on these issues. But when you actually read the judicial opinions, they go much deeper than that. They talk about things like substantive due process. They talk about the meaning of the Constitution. And in my mind, that's the way the law is supposed to work. Sure, the Supreme Court has always been a political organization. These justices do have strong opinions on social matters, and that plays out in their opinions. But I think the way it's supposed to work and the way it often does work is a discussion by some very intelligent and studious people about what are our fundamental rights and responsibilities as Americans. Looking back at the records of these conversations for hundreds of years in precedent and case law and seeing how our uh, opinions on these things have changed. Looking at different types of jurisprudence like originalism or uh, sociological jurisprudence, which incorporates changes in society. And just having this conversation about, you know, what do we want to be as Americans? How do we want to govern ourselves? I think it's important for the average citizen to understand that that's at least what Supreme Court justices try to do. That's what their better angels are attempting when they sit on the court. And uh, even if it's a Supreme Court justice that you disagree with on this one position, try and understand how they're arriving at this position and what precedent they're looking at. Mm-hmm. Well, Matt, we once again have gone over time, and I appreciate your willingness to go there with me. It's always a pleasure to have you um, come out and talk about these incredibly important issues with us. And um, as always, they leave me wanting more, so I will wait until next time. Thank you very much. <laughs> You've been listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we had the pleasure of welcoming back Matt Ressing. He is uh, the person who volunteered his time to us to help us talk about uh, the Supreme Court and the uh, people on it and the issues before it. Uh, Of course, we were convening on the occasion of the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to replace outgoing Justice Anthony Kennedy. 
I have been your host, Daniel McDonald. It's been my pleasure spending this portion of the evening with you here on Georgia College Connections. And I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you next time.